Michaels. Michael Garfield speaking. And this is Evan Snyder, and today our guest is Kingsley Dennis. Kingsley, we're really glad to have you on. You're a sociologist, a writer, researcher. A couple of your new uh, books that uh, we were able to check out here were uh, Dawn of the Akasha Cage and uh, The Struggle for Your Mind and a bunch of others you've done recently as well. We're stoked to have you on the show. Well, uh, Evan, Michael, it's a pleasure. Thanks for getting me on here. Indeed, yeah. For those of us in the audience, uh, ourselves, our future selves included, uh, I met Kingsley through the realitysandwich.com community. Both of us have written, uh, he's published some essays and some excerpts from his books on that site. And, you know, I really was was moved by the, the stuff, Kingsley, that you had to say about our generation and our generation's place and time, as well as the emergence of a new monasticism a new relationship to time and and to the sacred and not to, not to push the conversation in that direction but I do hope that we can touch on those topics because I feel that both of those are really uh, core really relevant to the the kind of intergenerational deep time inquiry that we have concentrated on with this podcast there's so many topics that we could pick up on because these times are, are incredibly uh rich and when i say rich i mean in in all in all forms i mean both in the disturbances and in the creativity which i think they play off each other and so and i you know you brought up the mention of time and generations um they're all coming into play now the playing field is 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 completely wide open because it's a time of of incredible transition and so there's so many uh, recalibrations going on so you could pick up of any of those themes and find something meaningful in this moment when, when when I talk about this time I actually refer to this let's say this transitional epoch as as being as important as going from a flat earth to a round earth moment because it's not only the changing uh, systems uh, that that's going on it's really a shift in 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 our perception our consciousness and how we understand our place in the world and in the larger sphere and you see you can't change anything permanently until you have a shift in consciousness especially on a mass scale the individuals and so when it actually has a tipping point then you have the shift where it becomes a consensus i.e a round world not a flat one um, so I think what we're dealing with now is an incredible moment of intense, creative, innovative individuals which are being part of that shift because this shift is not going to come from the core or the center. It's going to come from the periphery, a tipping point. So really all these things you mentioned are going to be part of, um, of that tipping point, Michael. So um, you know, where do we start? Well, on the edges, it sounds like. One of the things that I resonate with in that statement is coming from the you know biological discipline that you see that, you know there's the membrane around the cell and that that membrane is what's interacting with the environment with the supposed other and I, the cellular membrane and nucleus as a metaphor for sort of substrate independent organization of a complex system seems to carry across into our institutions and our social structures such that if you, you know, you look at, uh, for example, Thomas Kuhn's work on the structure of scientific revolutions, and he makes the point that almost all massive paradigmatic change in the sciences comes from people that are actually not specialists within the discipline that they upset. And, you know, that there's, there's a, 
in uh, Orson Scott Card's book, Speaker for the Dead, he compares uh, like conservative religious institutions and the sort of ecstatic, mystical fringe as the skeleton and the soft tissues of an organism that the conservative group, you know, what in a corporate structure would be the executive class or the board of directors have a vested interest in keeping things the way that they are, retaining the power structures that exist. And then you have all of this other fl more fluid and, and dynamic uh, set of tissues around it that are, that are constantly tugging at that structure and, and shifting it. It seems that uh, for me, that's like a, a, a helpful template for discussing the way that you, you talk about uh, these hyper individuals and these these uh, sort of revolutionary figures moving in from from the the margins of history and into the center of it. That there's sort of a uh, like a vortical flow going on there. Yeah, sure. And it's not only it's not not only an analogy, Michael. It's it's actually the biological truth. It's the way things work. And um, you know, we can go back to the beginnings of biological colonization or biological networking that um, bacteria colonize each other and eat each other and basically started to die off. And it got to a tipping point where in some way, I don't know how you can call the bacteria cellular consciousness, decided that the only way to survive was to cooperate. And so um, it became a, a nucleotic cell. And I think that's, that's well discussed in the work of Elizabeth Satoris. And um, now I, I cut my teeth, let's say, in sociology, uh, specifically on complex systems, looking at tipping points and, and chaotic complex systems. And also I looked at the complex um, arrangements in bacteria. And, you know, way back, uh, there have been many people, sociologists as well, looking at uh, the analogy of the cell as the planet as well. I think Lewis Thomas published about that in the 80s. Um, and so, and, and Lyle Watson as well was talking about that. And so there's a, there's a precedent there. And I think there's both. There's an analogy and there's a truth because we're all interrelated. And so what we can see on a biological level actually is operating on a larger sphere. And we can even take that to consciousness because with uh, now looking at the, the, uh, the cellular consciousness and the potential consciousness in DNA, and um, the DNA consciousness was first published in academic journals in 2006, although it was discussed before that. So it actually is getting into uh, a scientific, uh, let's say, paradigm now. So you've got the idea that um, you know DNA consciousness, uh, the field it, it creates, the bio, the bio photon field, actually passes information simultaneously much faster than RNA uh, protein information. So. Uh, What's at the core of this, really, is uh, the sharing of information, whether it's biological information, social information, or, or just part of the shared consciousness. And so what we see now, I think, is um, using the analogy of biology, I think we see in the insides out, whereby with the, uh, our technologies emerging across the world in that lateral um, network decentralized manner, and, and the internet and global communications are operating like almost the inside of the body. So it's as if we've had the blueprint of how information works and now we're seeing it manifested externally in our technologies in the same manner as often as we've seen biologically. So all those levels. And now, interestingly, just to finish on, is that I think the age we're moving into is an age of physical, 
digital, biological, technological convergence. So we're going to see a lot of those complexes coming around and finding a common meeting ground as well. Absolutely. Man, uh, good take on that uh, was uh, the idea of emergence, especially with respect to, say, the flocking behavior of uh, a group of birds and uh, the idea that the leading edges, sort of the outliers of the flock, uh, the, the skin of the organism is receiving and, and uh, giving information back to the external environment is often what trickles down to the interior of the group, the, the skeleton or the core that is most likely the, the more protected or, or the um, kind of uh, center of the flock. Um, so in, in, in watching a flock of birds move from one point to the other, it seems like a single organism because of the uh, really almost a, a simple uh, set of instructions that are recursive that happen over and over and over again in, in the neural structures of, of the bird flock. Uh, in, in the course of even a, a fraction of a second, uh, therefore all adjusting together to simple parameters and then looking uh, as if they're one thing. So I feel humans are actually uh, more similar to that in, in, in ways that we might not otherwise be willing to acknowledge, uh, uh, but also dissimilar in, in, in some. So the idea, though, the outliers or the, the skin of the organism versus the core, the, the, the skeleton, uh, I think still holds in a large number of data uh, analogies and structures, including like just graphing a, a vortice, for example, just requires a, a X, Y, and Z uh, and, and a sine wave, basically. So um, you're able to uh, create a, a otherwise complex-looking 3D structure out of a, a simple set of instructions if you're looking at it through coding uh, and, and code language. Um, and uh, DNA actually shares a good amount uh, in common with our digital and even analog structures that we have. So I'm, I'm intrigued to go back to that as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, sure. And there's, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, you know, I think information coding, I think we, we can really trace that into so many different um, avenues, you know, again, going into the, the construct of our reality matrix as well. And, and you know, DNA, the basis of life is a code. Um, the codes are everywhere. And so it's about how the patterns work as well. Now, as, as Michael rightly said, is that when the core wants to maintain the status quo, it solidifies and protects what it has. And what it tends to do is then it tends to try to dictate or control the flow of information. The core wants to you know, keep a hold of that. And so, therefore, it disrupts the, this kind of collective patterning. You know, when you have a flock of birds, it's because they, they, they are engaged in this emergent information. They have access to it. And so they, both with information and instinctively, they, they can um, understand this. So when you have centralized social systems, for example, when they have, uh, from, from the, from the, almost from the dawn of human civilization, the, the core of the social system has tried to keep a control over the information flow. In the early days, they had it called the priesthood, where most of that information was a religious, spiritual base. And then it became political. And so whether we have propaganda now and uh, all the more modern systems of controlling information, that has disrupted, I think, the, the emergent properties of a more collective understanding or uh, of collective sharing. Now, what's interesting is that because of the shift to a more decentralized and uh, distributed uh, energies and systems infrastructures, it's all happening. It's not only the infrastructures, it's the energies which are supporting that now. We're shifting from a top-down to a, a vertical to more horizontal playing field, and that's going to allow a more peer-to-peer -peer, uh, 
sharing of information, which I think is going to trigger and has been triggering a lot of the, uh, the uh, disturbances and um, the transitions that we're seeing in, in, the, in the social sphere. So, you know, it's all, it's all tied in. You can't really take one piece out and put it in a vacuum. Yeah, and in that sense, I think it's, it's key that if we're going to really grow into this holistic and organismal uh, understanding of human society as well as human society as a unit or an organ within this, this planet as a whole, that, uh, you know, a lot of people, you, you see this, this attempt to move into more... Uh, fluid, dynamic, collectivist structures, you know, like the Occupy movement is a fabulous example, but Occupy poses itself as the 99% against the 1%. And so it's actually retaining a residue of a, uh, a, an obsolete self-other construction that, uh, you know, resembles, uh, I was just out in, in New Mexico at Synergia Ranch and I was, I was blessed with the opportunity to speak on a panel with uh, some intense people, Dennis McKenna and uh, Ralph Metzner, psychedelic researcher, and, and, and uh, Valerie Plank-Wilson and uh, Gay Dillingham, both of whom are working in uh, nuclear disarmament, and uh, Alan Bediner, who was the editor of Zigzag Zen. Anyway, all of these people uh, were having a conversation about uh, existential risk and the relationship between the, the, the shift in consciousness that occur, that is possible uh, through the psychedelic experience and how that changes our relationship to nuclear technologies and you know, other kind of uh, self-produced existential threats. And one of the things that came out in that conversation was that we treat uh, uh, nonviolent drug offenses or nonviolent drug use and uh, we treat cancerous cells, and it would generally crime in general, cancerous cells, um, uh, aggressive island societies like North Korea, all of these are treated the same way. It's like we want to like, irradiate and eradicate them when it's clear that the only way that a totally healthy society can exist is if these elements are reintegrated and, and like rehabilitated. And that there's, you know, that when we finally do uh, cure cancer, it's going to be through uh, technologies that rehabilitate cancer cells that, that uh, restore their epigenetic expression to that of a healthy cell, rather than attempting to remove them from the body, which, in it, you know, invariably does all sorts of damage to the entire body. And that this is, this is you know, uh, this should inform our models for social change and reform. You know, we cannot assume that we can just eradicate the world's wealthiest 1% when in fact uh, that is, you know, this, this 40% of the economic resource that we have it, at, is, is actually necessary for the kind of massive, all-inclusive, everyone on deck, social change that needs to happen. These people need to be recruited, not uh, demonized, you know? And so, I don't know, let's say, uh, there's, there's something here on, on the way that, that this move to a, uh, you know, a peer-based, horizontal, distributed mode of thinking and of social organization requires a, a new uh, construction or understanding 
of where the self actually stops and everything else actually starts. Yeah, for sure, Michael. Um, you know, you're right there. Um, we're not there yet. And we, we're still trying to grapple with the new and we still have a lot of the old programming in us. So, you know, the 99 against one, it's still divisive. And we still have this them and us uh, mentality, even if we're not always conscious of it. It's because we've had this uh, within our, our kind of collective mindset for, for aeons, you know. And we've always had this, the world is out there and, and we are it and there's this duality. And so you can't just, we can't get rid of it so quickly. And so even though we're now trying to bring in uh, a new understanding and uh, you say new forms of, 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 we can call it consciousness or, or you know, perception and perspective, um, it's not, it's not going to switch just like a, a light, put on a light switch. Um, because we, we, still, we still have those residues of that's been there for, for so long. And so that's why um, I talk about generational change. Uh, especially when I mentioned the Phoenix generation, is that we're going to see a lot of new thinking coming in that's going to be brought into the generations. We still have a great um, trust in protesting. And for in many instances, we needed to protest because we wanted to get a voice across. In the East, there's an old um, expression, they say you would ride a donkey to the front door of your house, but you wouldn't ride it into your house. Which means that, you know, there's a time when you need a different vehicle. You need to get off and move in a different way. So I think, you know, I think we're trying to really, we've realized now, especially in the last 10 years with um, the reaction against, you know, the financial systems and, and the rest, that, um, well, you know, by, by protesting, that actually can also feed into the, the incumbent system. And so there are ways where we, we can actually not bang your head against a wall, but go around the wall. And as you say, you know, bring them in. I, and so, you know, it's, a, it's another way of recalibrating and reabsorbing rather than, than kind of struggling with it. So um, I, think, I think we're in early waves and especially the younger generation coming up. I think I feel and I sense and I see them. They're trying new ways as well. And they instinctively know, no, no, don't fight it. Let's find another way around. And, and so, you know, we're trying to learn these ways, but you, we still have old residue in our mindset. Well, there are, there are sometimes these, uh, these jumping points or, or threshold moments that we can experience uh, as a culture, and I think even as individuals, that uh, remind me of a research paper that has been circulating uh, recently from, I believe, a, a group at the Imperial College in London. Um, on the effects of LSD on uh, the human brain and the connectivity that emerges uh, under the influence of LSD being uh, in a way somewhat analogous to the shift, for example, from a vertical to a horizontal social dynamic, creating new connectivity where before it was not as prevalent or prevalent at all and therefore developing uh, rapidly shifting novel means of adjusting to scenarios or inputs and outputs. So I would love to get your input on, on that article and that research as, as well. Um, and, and Michael, uh, you too, man. No, thanks, Ivan. Yeah, I, I, I picked up that article. I think it came out just today or yesterday uh, from, say, from London. And um, it takes them, you know, it takes them actually over half a century to get round back to the research that was started initially. Um, now, you know, what, what these psychedelic states show us, for me, is, is reality of 
these states and to gain these perceptions. Uh, and so if the, reality, if the reality exists, the next question is how can we make those states more permanent? Because with the psychedelic states, and obviously LSD was very well you know, popularized as a kind of, um, let's say, uh, you know, the, the Leary-esque uh, type of, of jumping into it and you know, having, having the experience and then boom, you know, it's, it's very short-lived. And I think that was, that was, um, that was the, the drawback from a lot of the reputation of, of, of the substances like LSD is that they were just a, a short burst away from our current uh, state of consciousness. But that was, a, for me, that was a forerunner because nothing happens straight away. We have like the initial sign. So for me, that's a forerunner that these states exist. And so my, the question to me is, how can we make those more permanent? And so the research that's happening today is looking at obviously which areas of the brains are now being uh, utilized through LSD or etc. But you know, we, we've had a lot more other experiments, whether it's um, you know, um, brain entrainment and, and we're using, using biofeedback to understand how different parts of the brain are working. What society is now understanding is that these are plausible states that we can understand. Once we get rid of the stigma, I think then we can bring in practices that will be socially accepted for people to take these practices to want to reach these states and make them acceptable as, as, a, as um, let's say, forms of, of alternative forms of, uh, of the mind, you know? So when we say that accessing the internet, for example, is now United Nations uh, human right, that people should be granted access to the internet. I think that eventually we should understand that it's a human right to be able to access certain states of consciousness and, uh, and allow practices that will help us maintain more permanent those states without, without social stigma. That's parallel to the work, uh, the, the, the idea that I've, I'm sure existed before this, but I encountered first in science fiction author Greg Egan's novel, Distress which takes place, I think, sometime in the 2040s or 2050s and examines uh, a lot of issues involving the, uh, the climax of internationalization or globalization and the emergence of uh, international temporary autonomous zones, island states, and you know, really, really looks at this issue both from the, the geopolitical and social, but then also alludes to how this is this uh, the the destruction of normal or the deconstruction of normal shows itself in gender relations as well as in and uh, neurological cultural understandings and there's a there's a fabulous chapter right at the very beginning of the book where the protagonist is interviewing the member of a, a social group that the head of a social group that advocates that autism is a distinct neurological type that merits its place at, at the table uh, among you know, the, uh, the ecosystem of different human, like different human uh, personality types, basically, and like brain structures, and says that, uh, this, that this issue of us learning that there are different, uh, different realities that are disclosed to different biological uh, forms 
within the range of what we have historically considered human is, is going to lead to us uh, challenging and probably fighting over for decades until we finally release these categories, uh, you know, these, these definitions of what is human, what is normal, and what is healthy. And, and that this, this fictional character who finds uh, a way uh, surgically to induce autism and actually chooses to be autistic rather than you know what we would consider like the historically normal type you know it says that that none of us are in a position to judge this is akin to the sort of like the protestant reformation you know where we move we move from having this one story the one script the one interpretation to a number of different interpretations that all inform and enrich one another but i think it you know in to take the the position of the devil's advocate here, there's a fabulous episode of the Hardcore History Podcast with Dan Carlin on uh, the decades immediately following the Protestant Reformation and, and you know Martin Luther's uh, nailing his, his uh, objections to the door. And one of the things that came from that was that there was essentially a power vacuum that occurred when they successfully challenged the authority of the Pope and in it, when that one tree falls, all of these other little sapling prophets emerged out of you know to try and grab the light, and you, and we ended up with uh, a few years of extremely violent and and disruptive uh, change. Where this you know this is this is not very well reported in English, but in German, uh, there's you know there's this a, a huge body of literature about how the city of Munster was taken over by religious extremists and that you know out of out of the the decay of that central top-down organizing influence erupted uh and it's just an extraordinary amount of, of apocalyptic doomsaying uh sort of socially radical uh, proto-communist exercises that ended up becoming just you know, utterly barbaric, violent, bloody, uh, you know, uh, kind of fascistic things that the, the the Catholic Church had to come back in and, and take these people out in order to restore the the quality of life in the area. And so, you know, there's there's this. Uh, you know, I find myself weirdly, you know, on on both sides of the the fence when it comes to the call for this kind of of radical change you know that there's there's a sense in which um, you know by you know they say you know question everything you think but at the same time or, or like in in uh, postmodern philosophy you know if, if absolutely everything is relative then even that statement is relative mm -hmm. you know and so we we risk i feel like we, we yeah. we're running a pretty serious risk as a species of uh, recapitulating that kind of crisis on a global scale now and like losing the thread entirely. I think we are already doing it on a global scale, but not losing the thread. Um, you know, what you referred to was the 30 years war, um, which lasted more than 30 years. Uh, and um, I think you can see a pattern by 
Um, of course, the Reformation was caused by, was, was helped by the printing press and the flow of information. So again, we're going back to, uh, we have to deal with the consequences of the flow of information and literacy. Um, now, for example, uh, you know, it reminded me of, of such things as, let's say, um, you know, Libya or Iraq. You take out Gaddafi, you take out Hussein, and then woof, you get this violence that flares in its place. Although, you know, and then the Catholic Church or the Empire comes back and tries to, to kind of clean up. Um, now, I think whenever you, you create, uh, whenever you take like a, a stopgap out, you know, then society has pressure. Whenever you take a, a revolution or a, or, a, or a transition, releases pressure. And you're always going to get this kind of disturbance. I, I've never said that the transition or the transformation or the transmutation, how we want to see it, is going to be smooth. It never is. Um, but again, I think that's a pattern because all tipping points, whether they're occurring in complex systems or, or in biology and, and, and cellular systems, is that the disruptive energy is actually needed because it's used to catalyze the shift to a different order of, of a different state, a different arrangement. And so I think that um, it, it's very difficult to talk about these things without without sounding like distanced, you know. I think we all we all empathize with, with suffering and, and these, these um, disruptions going on. Um, but on a grand historical scale, um, without those disruptions in history, without that, that energy, that disruptive energy and that revolutionary energy, there never would have been changed um, that has helped society to, to make those necessary rearrangements and recalibrations. So I think it, it kind of goes with the pattern, unfortunately. Well, uh, there's uh, this idea of, at least in, in calculus, the, the sign flipper, you know, the uh, multiplication of a, of a negative one, for example, at the end of any function that is iterative or recursive, that uh, constantly uh, allows the function to oscillate uh, from one state to the other. And uh, it's interesting that we see similarly bifurcated states in, in human consciousness and, and trajectories in history and in science. I am certain it's far more complex than, than a, a looking at a sign flipper in, in calculus on a two-dimensional x-y plane. Uh, however, I, I do tend to look at also the derivatives. So uh, it may seem, for instance, that if you're, if you're sloping downwards on a curve, that it's a negative value and therefore a negative thing. But if you look at the slope value itself, it may in fact be curving back upwards and moving to where it needs to go. So it's all relative and it depends on what set of information you look at, what derivatives or integrals of information and, and, and quantification you look at. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, we, we live in a, we live in a, a cosmic uh, reality that, is, that, is, that has evolution through these chaotic moments. We have supernovas that we wouldn't be here without supernovas having had the explosions within the universe because obviously we are those reusable particles that has created us. And so, um, you know, that's the bigger picture. I think what, you know, I think the point which we are, which we're kind of, you know, touching on and, and agreeing on is that we are in, a, in this um, transformative uh, moment. And along with that will come patterns of disruption and chaos. Uh, but that may be part of the seed energy that that feeds into it. And so, and, you know, and again, there will be, uh, there will be, people or institutions that will be contra or against this exploration of, of the last domain which is the inner the inner consciousness as well so and I think that's 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 interesting that's happening 
recently, more so with the development of technologies, is that the battlefield has gone more and more internally into our minds. Because whereas before, uh, society could be more controlled externally, physically, through visible uh, deterrents, such as, you know, the, the hanging people in the town square, or the, or the guillotine, or these visible punishments. Now, that's not possible in most societies, let's say. Um, and so what's happening is that these, these um, structures of control have gone more internally, more, more manipulated inside the mind. And so what we're dealing with now is really not only the last battlefield, but the, the last frontier will be the, uh, the consciousness. And consciousness is not only an inside phenomenon, but also an externally, but we deal with it inside of our minds. So that is where we're going to see a lot of, um, I think, convergences and um, struggles and innovations as well. Yeah, man. Uh, so um, I, I was actually uh, watching, uh, prior to our conversation, a interview uh, that you did uh, on Outside the Box with uh, Jason Leosatos and uh, speaking mm, yeah. about happiness, joy, uh, the speed of life, etc. And uh, I was especially captivated by that uh, uh, moment in the conversation with uh, yourself and Jason, um, especially because of the, the pragmatism of it. So taking all these ideas that we've, talking, uh, we've been talking about, which are somewhat lofty, but also um, I think directly related to a long-term view of humanity and, and connecting it back to where we are now, um, that's where a lot of my interest is uh, personally, and I'm sure a lot of people listening as well. So uh, one idea I've been having, especially while listening to your conversation with Jason about the speed of life, is that um, in part because of uh, creating all these devices and, and uh, assisting mechanisms that operate at a speed sufficient to save us time, that we've in fact somewhat become a, a slave to the, the clock or the uh, the... BPM of these devices that were built to actually compress time on purpose. Uh, so anybody familiar with MIDI devices, for example, like a clocking a, a synthesizer to your MIDI out from your uh, DAW, like Ableton or Fruity Loops, knows that you have like a master and slave relationship. Uh, uh, nomenclature aside, uh, that is the genuine MIDI terminology used, so I claim no stake in that. However, basically, the master sends the, the, the signal rate to the slave, which adopts that signal rate for its own operations. And we've, in a way, become uh, captivated by the, the silicon chip, which is uh, at, at odds with our own biology. We are, uh, in fact, I think, not able to uh, sufficiently clock within those parameters. This is the Douglas Rushkoff present shock thesis, <laughs> now, which, which I actually, I was reading when I visited you in New York in 2013, Evan, and, yeah. and had, you know, a fresh pair of Google glasses and was really tripping on the, you know, just because of the time compression of New York City, you you have that sense of, of the sober psychedelia, that like the overwhelm of sensory input kind of triggers probably some sort of endogenous tryptamine release. And I was, I was walking through this, this uh, you know, psychogeography, like, you know, where I'm living, it's like a living uh, matrix where every, every geographical location is key to this, this vast realm of, of meaning and, and the whole world exposes itself as a waking dream. And in, in that dream, I felt like it was completely uh, coherent and consistent that I'm reading this book that Rushkoff writes about how uh, the the world, the human world, is 
shifting to reorganize itself in a way to adapt to these uh, digital, uh, you know, the, the digital chronos. His example was high-frequency trading algorithms and how uh, Manhattan real estate, and now, the, you know, many other cities, you're seeing the same kind of thing where the value of real estate is determined by its distance in fiber optic cable from the economic hub of the area that you know everything was you know everything in manhattan is valued by its distance from 42 hudson street and the new york stock exchange and so when that happens the the buildings nearest to it uh they they have to be gutted and and renovated so that the floors of the building can sustain the weight of these massive arrays of servers that are being used to run these these uh, you know uh, futures trading robots, and so it basically becomes a, a, an environment that's uh, inhospitable, that's actually like actively hostile to human existence, and so you know you get this this uh, question, which is, you know, the the nightmarish conclusion of of this like train of thought is in economist Robin Hansen's discussion on what happens when we finally learn to uh, emulate a human being in a computer and how that will that'll change the physical organization of our cities such that you know our cities are are uh, basically microscopic compared to what they are today but that they host trillions upon trillions of people and that the economic thing is all based on the the wealth of those those software individuals and their ability to run at higher or lower speeds i mean to me this sounds like a bad dmt trip so, you know, so the question is, you know, how, how do we square the circle? How, do, you know, how, uh, you know, like my question for you, Kingsley, would be, you know, how do you imagine uh, our generation and the next generations uh, reconciling and, and integrating these two different modes of time and, you know, the, uh, these two different sort of elemental bases for existence? Because it's got to happen. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, well, I mean, we, we're talking about, you know, we are shifting our geographies as well. And I think there, there's two elements of time I think I picked up on there. And uh, one, of course, is the, the time compression in terms of utility. You say the distance to the server, and, um, and this, this utility factor is also a very physical factor, and it's a consequence of our societies. So I think there's going to be different rearrangement of geographies. And uh, in terms of that, and I think there's, a, there's incredible developments in terms of the smart cities. Um, that's what's one area, but the area that interests me uh, that I've been looking at, again, is, is a time compression psychologically. Because you know, our, our grandparents, if they wanted, let's say, if grandparents wanted to go to America from the, con from the European continent, it would have taken them eight weeks by, by ship. That was the uh, that was the first part. Then, if um, our parents wanted to go, they'd have gone by plane, which would take probably eight hours. And now here we are, our generation having discussion simultaneously. You know, so there's a time compression which we can deal with in a in a in a more fluid way than our elders. They have more problems adapting to it. And so I think what we we're kind of like the guinea pigs. Because there's been incredible time compression in, let's say, in three generations, okay? It's from the grandparents to parents to us. So from eight weeks to, to simultaneous time. And so we've been having to deal with that 
through generations. Now, the people being born into the world now, the new generations, they are the first generation to be born into a fully digitized world. Okay, we didn't have that. The internet was was you know part of our generation. You know, I can still remember waiting an hour on the street corner for friends to turn up. I didn't have there weren't mobile phones to to say you know to text you know <laughs> where the hell are I? Um, and so we've been having to deal with that, and each generation finds a different way of, of accommodating that psychological shift. Well, I feel that that won't be the case in the generations coming in now. It's almost as if. Uh, through epigenetics, the DNA of the human body is being affected by that. And I do sense that new organs of perception come in into being to function according to need. And so because of the time-space compression over the last century especially, that's affected the DNA, that's affected our, our uh, receptive systems. And I feel that the generation coming in are going to be born instinctively more adjusted or more naturalized to a time-space compression social environment. And I think we can see that already, you know, young babies picking up gadgets and, and being, you know, connecting uh, and having a different sense of time and space and interaction as well, a very much tactile uh, interacting with, with devices to, to get us into contact. And so I sense that it's already impacted our DNA because we know that DNA does give off um, uh, these biophotons, the environment, the electromagnetic environment affects that and I feel that the human body can recalibrate that. And we may see a great shift coming in to the next generation which is more adjusted to the time-space compression biologically, psychologically and they, that will manifest in the way that they will interact with this world and the, the shifting geographies of, of urban living. Yeah, I, I would agree, Kingsley. I, I, uh was watching an interview recently with uh, the late great uh, Carl Sagan uh, on Johnny Carson uh, many years ago, talking about how uh, the human capacity to input and output information has been outstripped by our technologies and that we have been largely the same for, for a million years. And uh, what Sagan didn't touch on uh, in that interview, in a later interview as well with Charlie Rose, was the epigenetic component which uh, changes the game, to be perfectly honest, with respect to uh, the second or third derivative of the curves of human dynamism that we're evaluating and talking about, um, because it adds a, a, a element of immediacy, or, or what in physics is referred to as not just acceleration, but the jerk, or like the, uh, the immediate trajectory or shift in acceleration versus a positive or a negative. Um, and that we have the capacity uh, via our epigenomes, which adapt uh, generationally, um, and is a, a subject unto itself that would be fascinating to talk about at, at greater length. But uh, there are a, a few podcasts out there, including an episode by Radiolab that I highly, highly recommend uh, on uh, epigenetics um, that highlights our ability to, to change uh, pretty quickly to um, significant uh, environmental shifts and uh, gives me hope personally for our survival of the century and uh, uh, Michael really quick just to backtrack for a moment you mentioned how to square the circle uh, the answer to that is pi r squared in parentheses squared so uh, <laughs> I'm not sure if that actually amounts to what you were talking about but mathematically that's correct so uh, I'll let you guys take it from you know radius times two uh, cubed divided by two or according to hermetic law the 
The center is nowhere and the circumference everywhere. <laughs> Entry point to discuss the new monasticism, which I know that the uh, Reality Sandwich editor Jeremy Johnson really, really, uh, he and I both got really high on your essay about that you posted on the site. And I'd love to know, you know, uh, to, to hear you uh, unpack this idea for listeners and, and to uh, discuss how you see this, this uh, you talk about new organs of perception within the individual and it seems like there's, there's a, an epigenetic response on the social level to uh, new uh, social types in this world, adapting, adapting to the new communication infrastructure. And so we have, uh, you know, uh, my, a lot of my friends and I identify with this idea that we, we're working with uh, sort of a new category of a person that both taps into and draws from uh, an, you know, an ancestral understanding of the, the deep monastic relationship to time and, and, and specific quirks of social organization, but has a, a lot of novelty and new characteristics. And I'd be really interested to rap with you about that. Yeah, thanks, Michael. Um, we had a good jam on that subject, and his podcast is still out there if anyone wants to, to review it. And uh, I should say straight off that I used the term new monastics because it just came to me, and afterwards I realized that this term did exist and there was more literature on it and more people speaking about it. So I wasn't consciously uh, aware of, of that or any way uh, referring to it or ripping it off. It was just, you know, I came across it in my own way. So so kudos to anyone else who, who spoke about it before me. Um, and I respect that. Um, my term of, of the new monastics um, is really... Uh, it's a positive side because it, it, it uh, signifies that the, the empowerment of the individual. And it, the, I refer to the monastics because during the, the, the epoch of the, of the era of the uh, monasteries, that was a time when really it was a storage of information. During the Dark Ages, uh, especially after the fall of the Roman empires, uh, these monasteries were the havens of, of, of storing information with the, uh, the monks, you know, creating copies of, of well of important literature, they were scribing it, and that was saved until a later time in Europe when it was more socially amenable to release that information. So they were kind of like storage hubs in, in the monastic cloud. And the monks were working away, working away, without any sense of recognition, apart from, you know, divine service, but no social recognition. And so I use that term because now I see that there are so many people in the world doing their thing a lot of them under the radar, in the sense that they're monastics because they're workers. They're workers for, for a vision. They're workers that there's something they believe in. Um, but they're not doing it for social recognition, for immediate reward. Uh, they're doing it because it's part of their internal service and, and, and sense of self and sense of, of drive. And so that's why I called them monastics. But in a sense, the information leap has shifted. So we're not in isolated monasteries anymore. We're in, let's say, a, a kind of like global monastery. We're in a time when information can be shared. And so now we're all kind of monks in that we're working away. A lot of us are, are, are working away under the radar, but this information gets out. Or it gets out indirectly. Or it gets out behind us without knowing. I don't know where what I say, where it goes, or... Uh, I receive information, a lot of it, I don't know where it comes from. So I sense we're all in this kind of 
hood, humanhood, sisterhood, brotherhood. And also, I refer to like an image of, I've used the analogy of the blotting paper. You know, a blotting paper where you put blot, dots of ink, you know? If a blotting paper is, is white, you put a dot of coloured ink, you know? You get one dot. You put another dot somewhere else on the paper, another dot, fine. You put three or four dots, they're fine. You know, in the past, that's how the monasteries were. They were individual dots on the paper, but the paper remained. But today, the way we're connected, the way we're working as, as, as these, you know, in this monastic endeavour, is that eventually, all doing our thing, the dots of ink will start to spread, spread on the blotting paper. And eventually, without even realising, the blotting paper would have shifted to a different colour because they've all joined up. And so that, for me, is a sense of empowerment because what I, what I want to say of them, to people and, and to myself as well is that whatever we're doing, it matters. It doesn't matter how small it is or how, how, how small you think it is or inconsequential because it all resonates and reverberates back out into this web. And so I think it's a great empowerment because it is going to come connect in some ways and it's happening. And that's why we're seeing innovation flips, you know? Um, we're seeing some great innovations in one part of the world, another part of the world. And the status quo is saying, where did that come from? Where did that come from? You know, we've seen things happening overnight which are disruptive. You know, we, they, we are, they are innovation disruptors. We can have conscious disruptors. We can have all types of disruptors in a positive sense because they're flipping, they're flipping the system and no one sees it coming. And that's the monastics. They work because in somewhere down the line, what they did here will flip the system down there. And, uh, and that's why I, I support and, you know, and respect all, all, these, all these monastic workers. The, the direction that uh, the monastic tradition can give individuals with respect to their own consciousness is substantial and therefore uh, been sustainable and a perpetual uh, facet of human culture for generations. And I think one of the underpinning facets of that is uh, asceticism, the uh, purposeful uh, avoidance of forms of indulgence that can distract one from their direction, from their laser sight that they have set. And I feel that holds true today more than ever uh, with respect to the numbers of inputs and the potential uh, quantity and quality of indulgences that we have available to us in any given time. Uh, the system that we seem to be disrupting here is one uh, that in some sense is actually relatively easy to disrupt because it's a, it's a system that doesn't appear, or it's a state of being, a fairly new and, and fragile state of being in which we have relatively uh, little horizon, that the, the, the bubble of our awareness has, you know, has uh, that, that time compression we're talking about, it seems everything has, has shrunk to instantaneity at the same time that, as Roshkoff mentions in Present Shock, Facebook has your, your entire history collapsed into one moment, and Google has your entire future collapsed into one moment. And so, uh, but, in, but in some sense, it's, it's, uh, it's a simulacrum. It's not actually accurate to our experience. And that the, you know, what... The, the people who are keeping their head down and working for the future uh, at this time are offering is a, a larger time horizon 
and that I, you know I don't know if this is sort of off the rails or if this is just a, a pleasant irony or, or paradox in the way that things are now, but that it's it's actually the the sort of like manic uh, ideology of disruption that is itself being disrupted uh, by this this. Uh, what I would think of as a more mature, stable, and yet uh, essentially more dynamic, because if you have no memory, then you continue to repeat the same, the same sort of habitual behaviors constantly without the opportunity to reflect upon them. There's less of an entrance for, for a genuine insight and emergence and novelty to to uh, express itself. And so there's, you know, this is wrapping it around. Uh, uh, sort of self-servingly to the, the the whole reason that we're doing this podcast is that you know we, there's there's something really beautiful even if it's not recognized in a hundred or a thousand years about acting you know looking at the far horizon you know that kind of taking that that state of uh, you know in Walt Whitman's passage to India you know he he basically considers the linking of distant nations and and in, and in this sense, like the linking of distant moments, as as the the uh, as like a divine labor, you know. So, yeah, I, you know, yeah, you're right. There's there's so much affecting and recalibrating our sense of vision. Uh, you know, we when you start talking about augmented reality as well, when you have augmented reality, then you know the horizon or what is outside of reach can be inside of vision. Then. Um, we're not going to really have the same geographical sense of, of the borders, of, of our isolation of where we are. You know, so when the, when the augmented sense comes in, uh, it's going to jump even further than we've got so far. We're in the digital phase now. You know? we're, in, um, we're in the early stages of uh, this technological shift, for example. You know, people are now talking about um, the, the World Economic Forum are talking about this as the fourth industrial revolution. Okay, um, you know, it's, it's not. I don't like the word industrial. I think it's going to go beyond that, um, because you know we, we've had the digital, but you know we've only had that in the last few years, and so the the iterations from that, which are going to be speeded up, and that's the point of time is that the iterations are happening much quicker now. Then every state we're in is more fragile because it's open to more iteration, and therefore we don't need. We don't need a huge um, impact to make the change because now everything is that point where we're in a, a convergence that before, if there's only one thing, one innovation coming or two innovations, you know, there's still part of the staticness and you don't, you don't, you have to really push it like trying to, you know, trying to push a car when it's still, you need that emissional momentum. Now the car's rolling to keep it pushing, just have to just tap it. And so, you know, to use an analogy, we have that kind of like a sand, a pile of sand and it's been built from everything that's gone before. And now all you need is one or two grains of sand on the top that can really just collapse it or disrupt it. Everything's so fragile. And so we're going to see that what happened 30 years up until now is going to be overtaken or innovated in just, uh, you know, a year or less. And that's what that's that's something which we have no experience of, and that's what's really kind of um, impacting us in terms of time is that these iterations boom, 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 so quickly, and um, and so 
I feel that you know we're the guinea pigs to that, because we came from a you know we came from the old world, one leg over there bridging the new world, one leg over here. We are kind of like the, you know the bridging generation. But um, what's going to come in? The generations coming in are going to instinctively understand this and and move with it. Uh, I think so quickly. And when you get when you get uh, participants moving with this this new sense of time in the world. Um, then I think we're going to see rapid, rapid change in the future with disruption as well. But but it's going to come so fast. Everyone's going to be a hula hooper in the future. <laughs> <laughs> well, you never know. You know, it depends on what you can see. Uh, there, there's a, a technology called the over the horizon radar, which uh, is an example of repeat iterations or developments in R and D into radar technologies that then later led to the ability to see over line of sight or over the, the horizon. <laughs> using RF bouncing off of the ionosphere as a like means <laughs> yeah. yeah, of looking over the edge, so to speak. So uh, you never know when one of those iterations is, is going to allow you to see over the given previous horizon and allow you to then uh, define a new one. So um, there's also uh, the you know various permutations on the Victor Hugo quote, there's no stopping an idea whose time has come. Yeah. You know, just to come on to that as well is that I think now we have to deal with a phenomenon which uh, is still in its early days, but is known as like open source. Um, you know, I think I, I, David Steele did a great open source manifesto on, on the Evolver edition books, um, in the sense that, like you say, certain things are going to be like Trojan horses. So, for example, we mentioned briefly Harp about you know bending over the ionosphere. And I think the internet was similar to that. It, it came, it, the intention for creating it was something very different, maybe something more nefarious or something more centralized. But somehow it got out into the public domain, the open source domain, and look where it went. So I think so, there's going to be a, also a shift where so many more innovations, if they, if they didn't start in the, in the public domain, they're going to get there somehow, or, or they're going to trickle out there. You know, they're going to WikiLeak out into the open source domain and people are going to run with it. Just like being inside the Trojan horse, it was used in a totally different way. That, you know, and so I, I feel that um, it's going to be much harder to, to, to privatize and centralize a lot of these innovations because some form is going to get out into the open source domain and that is going to be a much more important and uh, much more, um, I think... Uh, creative and rich domain on this planet that's going to be utilized a lot more by us the new monastics the the people so it's less like a fish more like an octopus the society that we're moving into the brains will be more distributed into the limbs you know not to not to get uh you know uh, sort of too dark about this but you know it is the, the national security agency logo is a black octopus with its tentacles wrapped around the entire planet, you know, so, but then, but then, you know, uh, on a, a more like optimistic note, uh, there was a, a news article I read this morning about Inky the octopus escaping from the New Zealand aquarium. And they said that it, it went through this, you know, remarkable series of impossible tubes and openings and found a way down the drain into the sea because the, the only hard part of that animal is its beak, which is about the size of a coin. And so this thing that's the size of a soccer ball can shift and switch its way through any kind of, you know, unbelievable plumbing. 
and that there's you know that's that's sort of more what you're you're getting at here is that you know maybe maybe the future of, of social organization is uh, invertebrate. Life yeah. finds a way. Yeah. Life yeah. finds a way. Yeah. It's good. Yeah, and it's going it's going to morph. It's going to morph. You know, I think about ten years ago, the science fiction writer David Brin brought out a book called The Transparent Society, and you know, there's a lot of lot of debate about that. And I I know I felt he had got made a, a lot of good points, which we're seeing today. In fact, with with for example, the Panama Papers. You know, um, how many million papers have been released there? Something like twelve million. No, In, incredible amount, which would not have been would not have been possible before. Because, you know, you'd, you'd have to walk out with a whole room of filing cabinets on your back. Not possible. But, what, you know, the, the, the open, this kind of, um, you know, the, the nature of information sharing we have today made it possible. So, yes, we have the NSA. But in the NSA, we, every, for every one NSA, there could be one Edward Snowden, you know. For every one huge tax evasive company, there's someone who's willing to leak 12 million documents. Because now we have the infrastructures to receive that information, bring it into the public sphere, and make it transparent. And so, although there's greater surveillance, you know, that on the, on the other side of the coin, um, as David Brint, you know, very well put, there's incredible infrastructure to, and now a social domain to deal with that transparency in a way that was never possible before. So I, I just realized, by the way, that, that Inky is analogous to Edward Snowden. <laughs> <laughs> Very yeah, closely, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, definitely. I mean, that is, and, and you know, that we talk about time compression, and uh, there's a there's uh, a pun here, which is about leaking. You know, that the harder you squeeze a uh, fluid-filled capsule, the more likely it is to spring a leak. You know, and so it seems uh, to to get uh, astrological about it. I apologize to our more engineering-minded associates and the listeners, but. We're dealing, uh, you know, astrologers say that this, this phase from like 2008 to 2024, I believe, is uh, the age of, of Pluto in Capricorn, which to, to the archetypally minded is an age of the, the volcanic uprising of hidden information that challenges uh, the social order and, and, and uh, status systems. And so, like this is this is the time, and we're living through this time, where uh, the rock is getting overturned, and all of the stuff that's been growing underneath it is exposed to exposed to light, in, in much the same way that that we discussed the uh, the tree falling in the wood creates this new open area. The, the, the light finally reaches the floor, and it, it stimulates all of this growth that had been re like physically repressed by the, the canopy stealing all of all of this stuff. And then uh, the last thing I want to say about this before we, you know, in this episode entirely, is that there is, I learned something really pretty and, and musical about this principle in nature, which is that uh, I bought a, a guitar last year that was, uh, the wood is koa, and koa is a, is a tropical hardwood, it grows in Hawaii. It's frequently used to make uh, ukuleles, and there is straight koa in which the grain of the wood is is you know very uh, you know parallel and and uh, linear, and then there's curly koa in which you you see all of these little whorls and and warbles in the in the structure of it, and it, putting those two woods guitars made with those two the same wood straight koa and curly koa together 
the curly koa is so much more open and resonant and beautiful. And I asked uh, the the store manager what the difference is uh, in the in the way that these you know are these two different kinds of wood. And he said, well, initially we thought that they were. And this gets into your issue of epigenetics. It's like initially we thought that these were two different strains or breeds of the species. And so they, the, uh, the guitar makers took this curly koa tree and planted it and harvested its seeds and grew these trees and they ended up growing straight. And so the, the wood, they couldn't reproduce this until they, they observed the ecosystem and noticed that all of the curly koa was from a, from a tree that had grown up rapidly uh, in a race to claim the newly available light of a, another fallen tree. And that there's something about, uh, even, in, even in the vegetable world, there's something about the challenge and the opportunity of this kind of uh, rapid change that emerges from these, these moments of chaos and, and instability that leads to a more uh, sonorous, beautiful, musical hardwood. And that, you know, maybe, maybe that there's a, in the sense of like the, you know, uh, duende, but there's a soul that we're cultivating here collectively that, that can only be uh, arrived at, can only be expressed through, by rising to the occasion of the, the challenge of this age. No, great analogy. And curly koa, I think, is a wonderful analogy for that. It's, you know, almost a kind of alchemical tale, you know. Um, yeah, you don't get the Philosopher's Stone easily. If it did, we'd all have it. Um, you know, it's... it's <laughs> make, making soul stuff is difficult. You know, make, making a human being is difficult enough. But, you know, making a human being uh, with developed conscience, with uh, developed empathy, with develop evolutionary traits in this world we're in is a struggle. Um, but also, sometimes those catalysts are more useful for propelling that journey onward. And so I do sense that the, the disruption that's going on today can also be used to, to help us develop to be a better species for the planet, for ourselves, and to bring in new models as well, and to inspire us. So you know, I, I'm, I'm genuinely positive, despite what I see going on in the world, because I see them as, you know, as, as being signs that there is, you know, the possibility for great change coming in. And, uh, I know, and so, you know, I love that analogy of, of the curly koa. It, it's used the, the, the fall of another tree, of the disruption around it, to, to spur on its race towards the light. And so, uh, yeah, all hail the curly koa. Agreed, yeah. I mean, another analogy that, that, that comes to mind on my end is sort of take a, a Michael's luthier uh, carpenter's interpretation and, and spin it on uh, the, the angle of solar and, and engineering perspective. There's the idea of uh, monocrystalline or polycrystalline versus an amorphous uh, silicon uh, solar wafer. Solar cells that you see on your calculators back in the day, things like that, are largely amorphous, especially the ones that are now being rolled out that are like flat that fit on backpacks, things like that, where the crystal is allowed to grow very quickly, but doesn't actually uh, uh, create a grain, so to speak. It, it doesn't uh, uh, crystallize uh, in uh, the sense of a polycrystal, where it's a, a multiple angles of multiple axes of crystallization. 
or a monocrystal where there's only one particular set of, of axes. Um, so what amorphous uh, panels are really good at, actually, is taking low light from, from various angles and still utilizing that because they're so varied in their crystallization that they can actually maximize the 20% angle versus a, a direct overhead perpendicular from the sun or uh, frequencies from a light bulb versus a star, for example. Um, so amorphous crystals are, are very easy to grow comparative to, to poly or monocrystalline, and they're far less efficient overall, but they can actually do a lot more things. And uh, there are benefits to being amorphous, to being a, uh, a splintered rebellion <laughs> on the horizontal, you know? So um, I'm not, not, again, weighing in one way or the other on that one, but uh, Kingsley, thank you for uh, your time, and thank you for being with us here on Future Fossils. It's uh, been a pleasure. Very interesting to talk with you. And, and Michael, uh, thanks for joining us as well. As always, my friend, it's a pleasure to co-host the show with you, and uh, we'll see what comes up next. But uh, it's going to be hard to top every conversation we have. Well, thank you, Evan, Michael. It's been a pleasure and a half. Um, so thanks for your company. And the time uh, was wonderfully uh, donated with great pleasure. And uh, let's hope we uh, meet up someday down near the horizon. Where can people find your work? Where can people read what you are writing? Easiest way is just to um, Google my name, Kingsley Dennis. Uh, I was blessed with a name that comes up pretty high in Google search. Um, so my website actually is called kingsleydennis.com. And there I have, if you go on to the link of, of writings in the menu, I have essays. I have over 40 essays, which are all downloadable. And uh, I have audio and video on there. So just take a look. And uh, if, if you're interested in any books, just Google me as well and pick up the books on, on online um, stores. But um, I say, read my articles all for free. Don't have to spend a penny. And then the last question that we, we have gotten the tradition of asking all of our guests is if you were to leave a message for the future, you don't know when it will be read, you don't know who, by whom it will be read. Or but, what? Or by what? <laughs> Octopus, perhaps. Uh, what would you, like, what message would you have for anyone who might encounter this? Yes, we made it. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Thanks so much to both of you for taking the time to do this. And we'll, we'll see you on the other side. Will do. Cheers. species we won't have it figured out when uh, you know time comes whatever that may be but I think that's what it is um, ultimately it's it's a catalyst for humility